All right, so welcome everybody. It's Draft Politics. It's episode 11. Iran's so far away. Uh, as always, I'm one of your co-hosts, EJ, and here with me is Steve. Hey, everybody. Uh, a little bit different scenario this week. Uh, we are, first of all, we're flipping the script completely. We're doing the national piece first. We're doing the local piece second. As last week, we're going to split off into two separate podcasts so you can catch both. Uh, another little twist is that we're doing this remotely this week. EJ, where where in the world are you? I am in London, England, here in a beautiful pub here in central London. I'm drinking a very nice beer, although the craft beer scene has gotten over here, so uh, it kind of feels like home. Uh, it is late in the evening on this Wednesday here in central London. Really enjoying it. Love London. It's a place I used to live. Um, always happy to be here and happy to be doing this podcast remotely. Yeah, I've always enjoyed London. It's got a very, very comfortable feel, very familiar, but just just a little different. Yeah, it's like being back home, but more expensive. Exactly. <laughs> Although, hey, if uh, Brexit uh, unfolds, it cheap cheapness will be coming. <laughs> see about that. So anyhow... Uh, guess where we can get started is foreign policy, which has usually been uh, something we sort of downplay a little bit more in our podcast. Usually it's at the tail end, but, you know, we're talking about war with Iran. So it seems like it's a little more prominent. Yeah, I think it's a good place to start. It's been in the news a lot for a number of reasons. I think not the least of which um, that we see this ratcheting up in tensions and it's like the third or fourth anniversary of you know, Donald Trump's tweets about warning people that President Obama would you know, start a war with Iran to stay in office. Yeah. And if you haven't been following this, uh, what happened was is that there were two tankers in the Tonkin, excuse me, I'm the Persian Gulf um, that were uh, attacked. And uh, so the uh, U.S. claim at this point is that there were uh, uh, mines attached to the boats that caused them to explode. Uh, the evidence that's been presented around that is a grainy video of a boat that is said to be Iranian, though there's no evidence of it, pulling a mine off the boat, which seems like the opposite of what you do when attacking a boat. So none of it really makes a lot of sense. Right. And evidently the damage was above the waterline, which is not consistent with one of those kinds of mines. Um, and the captain of the Japanese boat said he saw a projectile, again, which would be more consistent with a missile. But again, as details often are, they're sketchy. And yes. and, and it's worth noting that one of the tankers was Japanese. Uh, Shinzo Abe uh, was visiting in Iran and Iran and Japan have good relations. So it seems like a very strange time for Iran to be attacking a Japanese tanker. It does. And I think on top of that, it kind of puts this narrative out there that is very hard for anyone to clarify because regardless of what the United States says, our credibility is so low that it's just going to create noise. Right. It's it's the the boy who has cried wolf over and over again at this point. So it's hard to know if this is something that's an actual concern, if it's something that John Bolton's put together, if it's something the Saudis have put together. And we know 
that we can't trust what we're hearing from the White House because they lie all the time. Right. And I saw some response from Adam Schiff, which I thought was interesting. And sort of his first response said that, well, it seems like the intelligence is pointing towards Iran. And then he sort of backed off that and said that, well, the important thing is that we listen to the intelligence and we look at it all in sort of total. Uh, but we also recognize that, you know, things happen and, you know, we can't move too quickly and, you know, be careful of an administration who often does not tell the truth. So it's sort of felt not politicized at the beginning and then seemed to get very politicized at the end. So I'll be interested to see how this plays out, not just from a political standpoint, but also from a security standpoint, because it's still a hot area and there seems to be a lot of room for there to be some misinformation. For sure. And, you know, we've we've done at least some response at this point of sending uh, there's plans at least to send another thousand or so troops to the Middle East. Uh, hard to know if that's responding to a specific, you know, security concern or if it is let's put our troops in harm's way so that they are, you know, that if there is any action that will have a reason to respond uh, more aggressive. Right. And I think there has been sort of universal agreement that if there is proven aggression against U.S. interests, that we will respond, you know, because we can't look weak. Nobody can look weak. But we also don't want to say that this was absolutely something that we should respond to. So, again, the posturing continues and the sort of positioning from our politicians continues. So, though, speaking out about defense, uh, Trump had nominated Patrick Shanahan for Secretary of Defense, and he's gone away this week. And I know you know a little bit more about that, Steve. So. Yeah, so, uh, and it's hard to know exactly how this all unfolded. The timing versus uh, what's going on with Iran. Also, uh, revelations about um, the Defense Department having free reign to uh, attack Russian power grid, uh, you know, doing cyber attacks. Uh, there's been a bunch of different things going on that may have led to this, but uh, uh, Patrick Shanahan, the nominated uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, has decided to withdraw his nomination, and underlying this is an FBI investigation into him. Uh, apparently, there was a uh, some sort of domestic violence incident between him and his wife. Uh, it was recorded on tape, a uh, 9/11 call. There, you know, they were bloodied in it. Uh, we don't have a lot of details around this, but it was pr a pretty serious sounding incident. And that was somewhat delaying, uh, you know, his confirmation process. Uh, it's hard to know if a lot of that came out to kind of help get rid of him or if that's just sort of organically developed and the timing is pure coincidence. Do you think that some percentage of Trump's nominees are completely extemp extemporaneous? And just done by tweet. And the first time anybody, including the nominee, finds out about it, it's when they see a tweet or somebody tells them about it. Well, you know, because I was wondering, like, if you're Shanahan and you know the FBI is going to investigate you and you know that's there, do you go into it and say, well, they'll find it, but who cares? I'll get I'll get uh, put into office anyhow. Uh, you know, I'm like, what is the logic? And, you know, I assume he at least, you know, he at least got a, a direct message rather than, you know, just getting it tweeted out. But you never know. Yeah. When the Don slides into your DMs. Right. <laughs> yep. 
you got you got to take some pride in the president DMing you. So hey, exactly. You hey, do? you're nominated. You're going to be the best nominee. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's hard to know there. Um, but interesting. Uh, we have not had an uh, an acting signed off on Secretary of Defense since December. No. Because that's when uh, when it was Mattis uh, stepped down was in towards the end of December, and so it's just been whoever's filling that role, you know. And I think Trump not having a particularly strong opinion on who's in the role, as long as they're kissing up to him, can probably live with that for quite some time. But at some point, that's a problem. <laughs> well, but I I wonder if if it is as much he just want somebody who kisses up to him, or if that's really a strategy, and I think we've talked about this a little bit before, a strategy of his to say, look, I don't need these kind of lieutenants because I want to make all the decisions myself. So not appointing people, not having people confirmed into those cabinet level, level positions makes him feel like he has more latitude to make decisions unilaterally. Yeah, because nobody's going to challenge him. But, you know, it's like because his, his mentality is very strange, though, because it's like part of it is he wants the power, but he also doesn't want any of the responsibility. Right. So he needs somebody there so that when something goes wrong, he can blame them and he will ask them incessantly nutty things that they cannot do and then get angry at them when they don't do it. Right. So. <laughs> You know, and and I, mean, I feel like so much of our politics is just trying to understand the psychology of Donald Trump, and it, it is quite a quite an abyss. <laughs> it is, and you know, when I studied political science, we talked a lot about the rational actor model, right? So, well, I'm, he's definitely not that, <laughs> right? Like nobody knows what to do, and I think that that is that is a consistent theme of how all of us, all of us, ourselves included, have to react and kind of make guesses. Well, is he doing this because? He's playing the long game or 3D chess, or is he playing 1D checkers? We don't know. I'm going to go with the checkers. <laughs> Me that's, too. That's my bet. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I suspect so we'll all see. the chips are one color. Right. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things I was, I was, I guess I would say happy to see this week was our, our Congress pushing back a little bit on the sort of unitary executive by finding uh, Barr and McGahn uh, in contempt, right? So civil contempt for refusing to answer subpoenas. I, I think that's an important step. Yeah, I feel like it's not, it doesn't fundamentally change the dynamics, but at least it's like we're taking a step further. And if we keep taking steps down this direction, we might get somewhere. But, you know, it, it, Barr is not in jail. You know, he's got, you know, that mark on his record, and I guess that's bad. But, uh, you know, what consequences is he actually going to pay for it? That's not clear to me. Well, least. do you think there are any consequences that aren't political? Right? Oh, no. Yeah, no. If, it, I mean, the only consequence would be, you know, political. But at this point, he's still the acting attorney general. And, you know, while well, he's the attorney general, I say acting in some weird optimistic way. Um but no, he will continue to be the attorney general. He'll continue to have influence to act that way. So I don't really think it changes all that yeah. much. It just sounds good. It, it does sound good. But I think that there is a symbolism to saying, look, we believe as a co-equal 
branch of government that responding to subpoenas is important. It's important enough for us to take legal action in one way or another. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I encourage that. And I think it's also very nice to be able to draw some parallels to the Nixon administration and actions that were taken because people in that administration refused to respond to subpoenas. So I'm all for it. Yes, and 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 then the the response to them failing to respond to subpoenas was uh, impeachment. Right, it's the next which step. we which we still haven't done. No, and, you know, and that's the thing. Like, if it is the next step, cool. But every indication we keep getting is that it's not the next step. That they they there's a lot of resistance. You know, there's sixty sixty some odd uh, House uh, representatives who are on board with it at this point publicly. But, you know, we're not anywhere near, you know, the majority at this point. And so I'm not sure that it's going to turn into that. I'm not either. But every ratchet, you can't go back, right? You can't say we've held somebody in civil contempt for this, but now we're going to send them a strongly worded letter the next time. I guess what it boils down to is, are they ratcheting quickly enough to have value? And that's that's my big concern is that if they keep punting this down the road, that the political impact of it and, and let's be clear, at this point, everything is likely a political impact because the Republican Senate isn't likely to even hear impeachment, let alone convict on it. Uh, the most optimistic thing I've ever heard you say about this process is when you just said the Republican Senate isn't likely to hear. I mean, that is vastly optimistic. I mean, they are not. Oh, yeah. I mean, Mitch McConnell won't hear anything at all. I mean, there's always the potential of political pressure developing such that they feel inclined to do it. I just don't know how that actually happens. So, you know, and in the meantime, you know, Pelosi seemed to suggest that, you know, they didn't want to follow impeachment. They want to, you know, keep doing the people's business. They wanted to uh, have hearings that would, you know, get word out there of the corruption and sort of build from there. The hearings have gone nowhere. Um, was it was it Hope Hicks today? Um, yes. Where they so they had a closed door hearing with a with a GOP attorney there, and basically the entire uh, line of inquiry was derailed by that attorney, which is not a surprise to literally anybody apparently except for the House Democrats. So, (laughs) you know, I mean, I guess there's some intent to try to like look reasonable and to try to work with them, but I don't know where, I don't know where they think that's going. Yeah, me neither. And I think that is going to continue to be a very touchy subject for Democrats as we move forward through the primaries. And honestly, I think at some point, that will be something that the Trump campaign and Republicans attack Democrats in general on. They're a divided party. They can't even decide what they want to do. You know, I think that is going to be as big an issue as, as the mere fact of deciding whether or not they're going to impeach the president. It'll show that schism, and we will be very vocal about it. Yeah, I mean, I've long believed that 
we're going to see Russian troll farms and, you know, possibly some Republican paid troll farms that will be trying to divide Democrats on the issue of impeachment. Why would you support the Democratic Party? They're weak on this. Why would you expect them to be strong on anything else? Like, that's coming. And, you know, I mean, granted, they're going to find things to hit on anyhow, but I feel like that's a very easy line of attack now. Um, Ultimately, it may just depend on who's the nominee, what is their message. And that is one thing that's distinct about being a presidential election cycle is that whoever that is has a lot more say over how that unfolds. Right, right. Right. So let's maybe move on from there, you know, from people who we hope are sort of put into the legal system and talk about people who already are one way or another, like our good friend, Paul Manafort and his ostrich jacket. Yes. So I think as we all know, he's been convicted or pled guilty uh, in federal court, but now he is under indictment from New York state court uh, for a number of things. He's been arrested and he was supposed to be transferred to Rikers Island, which I only know about from Vox documentaries and law and order. Uh, but it's not, it is a not a place, place you want to go. No, <laughs> not a place you want to go. And luckily for him, he has a friend. Evidently. Good, good old Bill Barr. Right. So there to federal, protect him. Federal government intervened and took custody of him again, uh, which is seemingly very fishy. Yeah, it's it's like if he was any other criminal in that situation, would the attorney general intercede? And the answer is clearly no. So why is he interceding here? And yeah. so is he part of some obstruction, you know, at this point? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Can you can you obstruct once he's been found guilty? I guess. Could they be afraid of something that comes out in state court? Well, what it could. Well, here's my thinking is that they are trying to keep him happy so that he does not testify and harm Trump down the road. And so I, that he has something that he can still throw on Trump, but that he's not revealing it because they're treating him relatively nicely. And like right now, you know, obviously he's in a prison. <laughs> the quality of that prison, you know, maybe is better than other options like Rikers Island. So, right. you know, and, and he may be just saying, OK, I can be patient and sit here for a couple of years while you guys work this out. And then I get a pardon later and we're all good. I mean, I. How old is Paul Manafort? I mean, okay. uh, old enough that 70, waiting more than a couple years is going to be a problematic. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think a couple years is is probably a a double digit percentage of his life expect, expectancy. Yeah, and oh, and something to bring up here before we go too much further is the Supreme Court ruled this week uh saying that state and federal courts can charge separately right. so he's not going to be able to be uh, uh he's not gonna be able to have his uh, pardon from trump to protect him from state prosecution right dual sovereignty right so there is no double jeopardy when you're prosecuted by state and federal courts uh, which was a, an interesting sort of combination of justices if you looked at that ruling it was not a five to four liberal you know conservative thing so 
Uh, we actually had a few rulings this week that were uh, strange bedfellows, if you will. But, uh, but the other thing I kind of want to toss out there about what's going on with Manafort, like, I don't see what he could possibly still have that he hasn't said. I mean, so could you imagine saying, well, yeah, I was the campaign manager and I was working with Russian intelligence to give them polling data. I don't want to tell you the bad stuff, though. Well, you know, I think there's, I mean, clearly he's already told them a good amount of bad stuff. I think it's how closely it's tied back to Trump that's a question. If he can show that conspiracy side of things, that there was an agreement reached between parties, then Trump is in more obvious trouble than the 10 counts of obstruction of justice that are already an impeachable offense right now. I would love to hear from uh, a lawyer on this to say if Paul Manafort during a state trial came out and said, actually, me and the Don, here are some emails. We were talking about this or he was he slid into my DMs to say, please give the Russians all the information. What could the New York state court do about that? Would they have to kick it back up to the feds? Is there a federal crime there? I, I just don't know. Because I mean, if they find if if something comes out that's a new crime in state court, then presumably that would get bumped up. Though I can't figure out. I don't see how that yeah. would happen just because like if yeah, if if Manafort said in open court, I committed a crime, they could do something about it. But like. Everything else has already come out through the evidentiary process right. and all that. And, and in the Mueller report. So, I mean, yeah. interesting times. Uh, I guess there's not going to be anybody following Paul Manafort around Rikers Island with the, you know, with the bass guitar and the bump bump every 45 seconds to cut to commercial. <laughs> no, probably not. It I, would be I good. I would though. pay to see that. Maybe with iced tea. Yes. Yep. Alas, William Barr has deprived us of that, and I am sad. Indeed. So, speaking of things that make me sad, and <laughs> uh, asylum seekers and, and how uh, asylum seekers are being handled by our system right now, kind of reached a metaphorical peak here in that they're going to use Fort Sill to house approximately 1,400 of the unaccompanied minors. If you don't know what Fort Sill is, that is the place, one of the places that uh, Japanese Americans were uh, interred during World War II. Unbelievable. So what's old is new again. You know, and, and from there, it's like you've got 24 people who have died in custody. Um, that we know we'll of. Say, that we know of. Um, we, you know, we've seen a new line of attack on the concept of all this, talking about everything as concentration camps. And if you look at what a concentration camp is, the definition of it, it is 100% accurate. It's, you know, people being isolated based on, you know, their race or, you know, you know that kind of thing. Or refugees are explicitly a, a possibility and being put in substandard uh, living conditions. They are way overcrowded. Um, to that end, uh, apparently there's been some talk in the Senate of a $4.6 billion package to help fund uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement because they're going to run out of money at the end of the month because of all the costs associated with this right now. Um, 
Part of me is like, we want to make sure they have humane conditions. We want to make sure that we put the money in where we need to. Part of me thinks if we had been going with the same approach we were before Trump got into office, where they are released, they are put a, uh, a collar put on their ankle to make sure that they can be tracked. And then they are, you know, basically that they are not tried to hold them in an actual prison. That's where this all started to fall apart separating families from you know their children and all of that yeah and you know i find myself sort of speechless not just about the what seems to be pure cruelty of it but then the thing that i said i was not going to get angry about the hypocrisy of people who said you know we will never never host or house refugees here we will never you know, keep people here until they are sort of part of this regime and they're fine with it now. Well, but if they're, you know, if the motivations seem more racist, we're okay with that, which which just blows me away. And of course, Donald Trump kind of came out today and said, you know, we're going to start deporting everybody and getting rid of as many people as we possibly can starting next week, which, again, I understand. You know, I wonder, though, how much of that is bluster related to his, you know, campaign launch event and how much of it is true. But if if it so if it is true, it's terrible. If it's false, it's still terrible because, you know, he thinks that's a political win for him to say he's going to do. Right. That. And amongst his base, it does seem to be a political win. Right. Duh. It's a deep sigh. And, you know. One of the things being in England this week, I've been talking to a lot of people because as an American anywhere overseas, people want to ask me about Donald Trump. And most of the people I'm here with know me. So it's not sort of on Tinder hooks. They're wondering if I'm... They aren't expecting you to defend him. (laughs) I'm not wearing the hat. And of course, Donald Trump was just here in England a few weeks ago. It's still very fresh in their minds. Um, and they've seen and laughed at the sort of fake videos that Donald Trump has retweeted and other people around him have retweeted about the parades for Donald Trump where they were showing the parades for Liverpool, right? So, you know, they're aware of all these things and they're staring things like Brexit in the face and Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, Farage, and they're making fun of Donald Trump and they're asking, like, how can people put up with that all the time? How do people just listen to that, assuming it's true? And it's really interesting to come back and say, well, how did people listen to the Brexit claims about you know, millions of pounds, hundreds of millions of pounds right. <laughs> or you know, Boris Johnson thinking he's a great guy when, you know, if Donald Trump had seen him a few years ago, he might have called him Cocaine Boris. I don't know if you've seen Boris Johnson, but, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, it, it's interesting how, like, the dynamics of the politics in the UK and here are, are so similar. Um, I mean, obviously, they've got different permutations, but it's the same sort of, like, a, a portion of the population is prone to racism and xenophobia and has had undue influence in the system. And 
it's yeah. all gone very yeah. badly because and I think of that. that. There's a, a real question about that sort of right-wing populism across Europe and maybe in other places. It's not certainly something that is worldwide, but we've just had the European elections and we saw places like Poland and Italy where right-wing parties gained a lot of traction. Sort of right-wing, populist, we don't want immigrants, we want to make our country great again. Those parties have messages that have resonated. Why is that? That's something that we think we're asking. Yeah, and I think I and I think what it is is that it provides simple answers to complicated problems. And there's left populism and and I think generally speaking has had better answers. Yeah. But they're also yeah. tended to be more complicated answers. Um, like I was just hearing today, you know, we we're talking about, you know, this is a little bit tangential, but we're talking about Medicare for all in some polls and everybody's understanding of what Medicare for all is, is different. Right. And part of it is that it and is in, that's a very simple concept is here's Medicare. Now everybody gets it. But there's been so much talk about, well, what does that mean? And all the different nuances of it and various people trying to take Medicare for all and turn it into something it isn't. Right. And so now it's a muddied message. Now you look on the, the right wing side, there's no opposite of that. There's no health care plan to counter Medicare for all. But there's a whole lot of, well, Obamacare bad and racism good. <laughs> and somehow that works. And somehow that works. And I think actually that's a decent segue into... Election Circus 2020. Right? Because that is a key thing that we've talked about across the Democratic caucus. Medicare for all. Absolutely. What does that mean? And I think even across the 450 people running for president on the Democratic side, but is that a, that may be a bit of an exaggeration. But even across those, those folks, it's a, it means different things. Yep. And this week we have big news because, um, as everybody hopefully knows by this point, next week is debate nights, uh, our debate nights. There are the debates. Uh, two nights, 10 people on the stage each night. We now know what the lineups are. Uh, the betting pools can start. Your tournament brackets, you better have them locked in by you know Tuesday. Absolutely. Because uh, Wednesday and Thursday, time to get serious. So should we talk about who's in or who's out? I, I, I can never decide. So let's do you want to talk? Well, let's yeah, let's start with who's not in it, because I feel like we need to shout out to our our fan favorites, uh, Seth Moulton, who did not manage to get enough support to get into the debates. Uh, the Moultmentum was Couldn't simply get there, not man. there. Couldn't get there. What What are your thoughts as, as a T-shirt owner? As the T-shirt owner, I am sad. Uh, but I also think it probably increases the intrinsic value of it. Um, I really, I'm not surprised, right? So, you know, individually numbered T-shirts, I've got number one. Right. <laughs> um, it, it didn't surprise me that a rep from the northeast part of the U.S., would have trouble getting broader based traction. Yeah. With, with very little visibility and a slightly odd right. name. We don't need a set to be honest. 
I, but who I am surprised at and really kind of sad at is Steve Bullock. Yeah, and I most of my impression of this is that he got in a little too late, and I, I gather from what I've heard that a lot of it comes down to what was going on in politics in Montana at the time. He just wasn't able to get his machinery up and running fast enough, and so he just hasn't had the time to build that momentum. And so I don't know if maybe you know, over the course of the next couple of months, he can somehow get over the threshold to a future debate. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Right. Well, but of all of the people who have made it in, who would have a position that sort of better represents the voters that the Democrats so clearly could not attract in 2016? Right. He's the governor of Montana. I want to hear what he has to say. He won a statewide race in a state where Donald Trump won by, I don't know, 15 points in 2016. Yeah, I'm much more interested in what he has to say than, say, Bill de Blasio. Yeah, don't care. Don't care. Though he is not, as far as I know, as tall as Bill de Blasio. Does he eat pizza with a fork? Uh, No. I would guess probably not. Yeah, no. I would think not. No, he doesn't. Nobody does. Just Bill de Blasio. Although if it's Chicago style, it's okay. But that's a separate conversation that we're not going to get into today. No, it's like a smoothie. So the Detroit style pizza is pretty good. I'm just going to say it is, but we'll move on. Absolutely is. So, you know, and again, the other two people who didn't make it in Mike gavel or gravel from Alaska and Miramar, Florida, home of Top Gun, uh, Wayne Messam, uh, again, not surprises, not really serious candidates. Yes, he 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 had a need, a need for donors. He did not get them. So he's out. Come on. Good reference. Top Gun reference, everybody. It. No, I got it. Yeah. You got it. Okay. Good. I was with you. Good. I was right with you. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, so that takes care of the people who did not make it. Um, so that leaves us with the people who did. And... It's interesting how this plays out because the majority of sort of the big name candidates are in the second night of the debate. Right. Um, so let's start with the first night, look through the candidates. We can kind of talk about that and then we'll drop down to the second night and, and, and the big fight card, if you will. Yeah. So, of course, they had tried to split the top eight candidates across the two nights. And it really felt like, as you said, most of the candidates dropped to tonight too. And I had read a stat and then I heard it repeated, I think on 538, where they said, if you summed up all of the, the polls that people got, night one, it's like 24%. Night two, it's 65%. So it's a huge disparity. But on night one, you've got Elizabeth Warren. She's going to be out there kind of on her own as the progressive candidate, along with Booker, uh, Beto. And so, again, two months ago, I would have said, hey, a Booker, Beto, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar debate. I'm looking forward to that, right? Like, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. You toss in Tulsi Gabbard, who I can't understand why she's there. John Delaney, uh, Julian Castro, Tim Ryan, de Blasio with a fork, and Jay Inslee. I mean, I don't know, six of those, ten, could have been a, an interesting debate. Um, but it does still feel like the undercard. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, you know, 
it's going to be interesting because Warren is so clearly ahead of most of the candidates in that on night one that there's going to be an inclination for all of them to kind of go after her to make their name. And so we'll see how that plays out. I mean, they're going to have the, so there's the two debates this week and then there's another two debates in July and all of these same candidates have qualified for both sets of those debates. So we'll see, you know, how this mixes up and how it plays out in the next round. But, you know, there's going to be an inclination to get out there. I mean, you've got to distinguish yourself from 20 candidates. I'd say 24 candidates, but we know that it's 20 yeah. at this point, if, if not less. Yeah. Than that. Um, but like, you know, John Delaney is going to have to come out and talk about how evil socialism is. And, and Tulsi Gabbard is going to have to come out and talk about how awesome socialism is and then talk about weird stuff from her political yeah. history that makes us all yeah, exactly. uncomfortable. Um, socialism is awesome, but I'm kind of evil. I shouldn't have said that out right. loud. Right. I, yeah. I mean, Castro is somebody that I would I had hoped would be doing better at this point. Again, I'd be interested in hearing from William Castro. Well, and that's the thing. Like, you know, and he may get he may say things that help sort of boost him up a little bit. Um, you know, I, it's going to be really weird. I mean, like Jay Inslee, there's another one where like, I wanted to see him on the debate stage. Cause I want to see somebody up there. Who's talking about climate change in a serious way. Yeah. Um, you know, but once again, he gets diluted by the fact that he'll be on one stage of two nights and, you know, is climate change going to be a, a feature of this? No. no. And he tried very hard to get a debate dedicated to climate change. And, uh, the DNC says no. So on that first night, who do you think can take best advantage of that array of candidates? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think I mean, I feel like Warren is in the best position um, just because she's going to look like the leader there. And yeah. so she and so it's going to be how does she look compared to everybody else? Cory Booker. I think is a great speaker. I've not seen him debate, so I don't know how he does in a debate scenario. Um, I think Beto's going to look like Beto does not have a plan for that. Let's just put it that way. No, um, no, he does not. Klobuchar, I think, I think she will try to distinguish herself as a moderate, um, wanting to try to get things done. I think she will look better than a John Delaney, uh, a Tim Ryan, um, you know, the blah. There's just so many of them. No. It's it's kind of absurd. Well, and then you say like, okay, so how much are we going to hear from any of these folks? Yeah, five minutes total, six minutes. I mean, you're talking two hour debate, right? Yeah. Plus a little commercial time in there, mm -hmm. and it's ten people, so twelve minutes total. If 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 there are no questions, commercial time. Yeah. I mean, because you have to have time for questions to be asked. I mean, it's yeah, it's going to be very little exposure. Um, I I hate to say this, but I kind of hope that Beto does poorly, so that he drops out. Right? Um, yeah, I have to say uh, I I agree with you completely, except for the you know I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> I don't feel bad in the slightest. <laughs> I mean, I don't wish um, anybody ill, right? I don't. No, Ill. no, no, no. But I don't think he's demonstrated anything at this point that really sets him apart from the field um he still could conceivably run in texas though you know who knows how that plays out now that he's spent this time sort of spinning his wheels at going for the presidency but uh, but the senate races haven't started right so 
he can still pick up there. Right. I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that Julian Castro has a real opportunity here um, to set himself apart a little bit. Yeah. I feel like he's kind of the dark yeah. horse of this. Like, I feel like he's got a lot of potential, yeah. um, you know, if he gets a couple good lines in there and, and shows some stuff, I think he's good. It's just gonna be, I just keep thinking like, it's going to be hard to distinguish yourself as more progressive than Warren. So that's not an opportunity yeah. for you. And then you're taught. So are you going to try to be more moderate than Delaney? <laughs> so who comes out of that and in, in, in a good position to go on to the next round? Right. Right. And I think he's probably got the best opportunity, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think, I feel like Jay Inslee, I think, I think it depends on how he plays his sort of one issue, uh, sort of, uh, approach to this campaign if he can turn that into a broader we need to rethink the whole system and this is the starting point of it I could see him having some potential he certainly he's been a governor of a, of a decently uh, you know established state so well so you know, but we'll if Jay Inslee comes out and says you know the environment's the most important thing do you think somebody's gonna say actually no and that's well, you know, but that's the thing. It's like, so, you know, do you see climate change as a existential problem or not? And so if it turns into a discussion about that, yeah. he looks pretty well, good. Well, I guess we'll see next Wednesday. Well, let's talk about Thursday. Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. You buy the whole seat, but you only need the edge. Right? The Buttigieg. edge. That's right. <laughs> Boot edge. Edge. So yeah, it's gonna be yeah, it's gonna be a good night. Um, I mean, this it's like almost the opposite of the of night one, where it's like there's like so many different directions of people who are sort of potential leaders of the field throwing back yeah. at each other. Like I don't know what's gonna happen to this. The only thing I'm confident of, and and I might be wrong, is that Biden is going to fall. I mean, I think Biden will say as little as humanly possible. But even in that it still hurts him because it ends oh, yeah. up making him look like, like other candidates will be making bold statements and going after him. And he's just going to be like, nah. <laughs> right. We got to bring everybody together under Obama. I think he, he says the words under Obama. Maybe that should be a drinking game. Oh yeah. Um, if he mentions Obama, he then that's help. a drink. Yeah. I think that's a good, let's, let's pin that one for later, but I don't think he has much upside on Thursday. Oh, no, uh, I, I don't think he has much upside in general. Like his yeah. campaign strategy is to avoid exposure at this point. That's a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, Bernie, a lot of name recognition. I think he'll kind of set himself out. I think it's good for him, that lineup, because he's not having to contrast himself with Elizabeth Warren. Indeed. You know, he's, his main contrast is going to be Biden. Um, I, I don't know where Harris and Buttigieg, you know, kind of come out relative to one another. Um, Williamson and Swalwell. Swalwell? Swal Swal Swalwell. Yeah. You know, uh, again, they're probably like, that's the worst case scenario for them. Actually, probably Bennett, Williamson, Swalwell, they really wanted to be not with 
the top four, right? Like they wanted to be in the other group. They would have done anything. Well, you know, actually, I think Bennett would want to be where he is because I mean, so you've got like Bennett, you've got Hinkalooper, um, you've got, oh shoot, who, uh, Delaney, like all the people who are sort of like, I'm the socialism sucks. I'm the more moderate conservative ish guy who's going to bring us all together. All those people are targeting Joe Biden. They want to be yeah. in that position and and segment off that part of it because they, they can't compete against a Warren or a Sanders on being the most progressive. Right. Or even an Andrew Yang. Right. Like, or even Andrew Yang. Yeah. Which yeah. It's another guy where it's like, I'm curious to see what he's going to do, because his main thing is UBI. I think UBI right. is an interesting proposal. And I think that he says a lot of great stuff about why it's important. You know, it's like, I want to see the Andrew Yang, Jay Inslee debate. <laughs> Granted, they'd be talking past each other about two separate issues, but both of them are saying things I think are a very sort of out of the box of the normal debate, but are really important. Yeah. 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 I, I, I don't know. I think we come out of that night. Um, I think we lose four candidates. Out, uh, four of the ones that are on stage. Well, Bennett, yeah, Bennett. I, I mean, well, see, it depends. Biden, I can see if Biden falls enough and I can see a Bennett or somebody like or Hickenlooper maybe rising into that position. But, you know, right now, I mean, Hickenlooper, Bennett, they're all pulling at zero percent. So anything is uphill for from here. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, honestly, like Delaney, Ryan, uh, I hate to say it, but Inslee, you know, Williamson, Swalwell, Hickenlooper, Bennett, you know, without some movement coming out of those debates, can they raise money? You know, do they even have a hope? I mean, yeah, they qualified for debate number two, but do they have a hope of qualifying for debate number three? No. Well, and that's the thing is like, if, if your main appeal is going to be towards the more moderate to centrist type of politics you're gonna you have to get your money from big donors there's not a strong grassroots you know a bunch of people are like i really wish we would work better with republicans let me send you 50 bucks that's not a thing <laughs> so so i don't know who you're going to get to get to your 130,000 vote pressure or excuse me donor threshold uh if you're playing that angle but you know hey maybe there's you know if you got 130,000 there's got to be 130,000 millionaires in the country I'll look that up. I'll look that up yeah, for after got, the break. Got options, right? Yeah. So I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. So uh, yeah, Wednesday and Thursday of next week, um, uh, as the drinking liberally Chicago host, uh, I'll be having a debate watch event at uh, the Gideon, Gideon Wells in Lincoln Square. Um, I don't know if you're going to be in the country or not, but <laughs> yeah, it's be in California next week. You never know where I'm going to be. Uh, so I'll be, I've got to look and see who the representative is of where I'm going to be at, but it's assured I'll be watching both afternoons will be Pacific time. Uh, it will be interesting. Uh, and I'll be hopefully find some people who have some, some hot takes as we go along and be able to share those as we come back. Sounds good. Yeah. So I'm not sure when we're recording next week with that, but you know, we'll see how it plays out. So, uh, yeah. So I think that takes us to the end of the 
national politics segment and on to our beer break. So uh, I am stationed in Dovetail, which is the closest brewery to my home. And I'm having a fine uh, Roche Doppelbach, uh, which is a good, like, little smokiness, but a good amount of maltiness. It's delicious. Um, what what fine beers are you uh, having across the pond? So let me tell you something that has blown me away. So I lived in London for a couple of years. The beers were pretty standard uh, and good, and I liked them. But in the last three years, the craft beers here have blown up have blown up in a way that I did not think was possible. So in the last few days, including today, I've had some really amazing craft local beers. Uh, Right now I'm drinking a pale ale. Uh, It is the IVO by Orbit Beers. It's, you know, it's a pale ale different from what we'd get back in Chicago. You know, I wouldn't equate it with something, uh, you know, something from Lagunitas or, any of those, but it is very tasty, very good. Um, I'm really enjoying this right now. Pretty crisp, pretty clean. Uh, I had a gamma ray er- earlier by a brewery called Beavertown. Um, another pale ale, super, super good. So it's picking up here. I was talking to somebody yesterday who said that uh, there's a street here in Eastern London that has a beer walk like every Friday. And it's craft brewers come out and they're serving their wares on a four block stretch. You can kind of go buy a beer, walk up and down, see what everybody's got. Oh, that sounds lovely. Oh, yes. Yes. And so it's supposed to happen tomorrow. I think I'll be there. Oh, fantastic. Well, good good that you get a little uh, little fun while you're there. We'll say that's fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. Excellent. So, yeah, so that wraps us up. um, And... uh, if you haven't followed, we're going to be splitting this up. So uh, this is the end of the national podcast and our uh, local podcast. We're talking about Chicago, the state, and maybe the suburbs this week. Uh, and that'll be our next podcast. So thanks for listening.